Hi, this is Madeline Carson, fourth year medical student at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and future family medicine physician. This is Clinical Pearls. We all know that the United States has been battling, has been grappling with this opioid epidemic issue for several years now. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So we as healthcare providers have this continual balancing act of trying to take care of our patients' pain while at the same time not leading them down a road of opioid dependency. Well, when you marry that balancing act with one of the most common procedures that occurs worldwide, it can be a real challenge. Well, what's this most common procedure worldwide? It's childbirth. So in this session, we're going to cover the September 2021 Consensus Bulletin from ACOG on pharmacologic, stepwise, multimodal approaches for postpartum pain management. Yeah, that's a mouthful. And I know what you're thinking. I know, I know. Just don't write for opioids and give everybody Motrin, right? Well, while that's partially true, we have to have a plan in place when Motrin or acetaminophen just doesn't do the trick. So again, we're going to cover the new September 2021 Clinical Consensus Bulletin from the College regarding multimodal pain management. Look, let's be real. Pain in the postpartum period is experienced by many individuals and it can get in the way of their normal quality of life and their normal function. The severity of acute postpartum pain has also been associated with persistent pain remote from delivery, as well as with perinatal depression. It can also affect, obviously, maternal-child bonding. Well, let's talk about the ugly and the real right here up in front just to be done with it. There are, of course, racial and ethnic inequities in health outcomes and care that even extend into pain management and even into the postpartum pain arena as well. It's very well stated and published that despite reporting higher pain scores, black and Hispanic postpartum individuals receive less narcotic pain meds on average than their white counterparts. So just talking about it and bringing this to light, recognizing the role of our own internal biases that we all have is one way to tackle and correct this discrepancy. Now that we've addressed that, here's why this issue is just so complicated. Look, everyone's different. There's significant variability in individual experience of postpartum pain. But despite attempts to identify predictors for experiencing severe pain or genetic or demographic factors, they're just not reliable. This is why the college states that we have to use their most favorite term, which is, quote, shared decision-making, end quote, to talk with patients and to educate them about pain control, to educate them about the importance of limiting opioids and of using this multimodal pain approach. Okay, so here's a clinical pearl. If you're asked on the oral boards or you're asked by your attending, describe to me the definition of a stepwise multimodal approach. Well, first of all, how type A are they to ask that? But nonetheless, it's very important. So let's get into the answer. Stepwise multimodal approach means it's a regimen or an algorithm where non-opioid analgesics are used first line, followed only then by low potency and for short duration opioids. And if those fail and non-pharmacological options also fail to control the pain, then using higher potency opioids, but for the shortest duration as possible. And here's a key word. 
This is nothing you need to pain control. This actually is taken from data from the World Health Organization about the analgesic ladder or the analgesic algorithm that follows cancer pain management. Now we're going to cover which opioids are actually considered low dose and which ones are medium potency and high potency in just a little bit later in the podcast. But let's get to a real clinical issue here. What if your attending says, oh, wait a minute, we can't give her Motrin. She's got PIH. She's got severe preeclampsia. And so we don't want to aggravate her blood pressure. Is that true? Well, I actually trained with that philosophy. Then we tried to withhold NSAIDs for women that had severe preeclampsia. It's actually not true. Earlier guidance to avoid NSAID use in individuals with postpartum hypertension was speculative and based on literature indicating that these meds could increase blood pressure in a subset of non-pregnant individuals with hypertension. And there were also some case reports that suggested a similar effect with postpartum hypertension. Now, although there is a possible biological mechanism here that kind of makes sense, recent studies have failed to demonstrate a clear association between NSAID exposure and exacerbation of postpartum hypertension. So here's the answer from the college for that attending who gives you that roadblock. Given insufficient evidence to support harm and overall findings favoring safety, NSAIDs should be considered among first-line agents in the management of pain for all individuals, including those who are postpartum and those who have had hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. BirthTracks.com what is BirthTracks.com? It's an online platform for medical students, residents, OBGYNs, and midwives to track important information about their birth and procedure outcomes. And listen to this. If you are a student or resident, BirthTracks.com is completely free to use for an entire year. Why BirthTracks? Because it allows for accountability for improved patient outcomes. It helps identify areas in need of quality improvement, and you can use these stats to grow and promote your practice or just grow and track your training. Intrigued? I'm going to give you more information about BirthTracks.com a little bit later on in this podcast. The potency of opioids are in relation to the strength compared to morphine. The low-potency opioids are things like codeine and meperidine. Tramadol is also considered a low-potency opioid. Your median-dose opioids are things like oxycodone, hydrocodone, and hydromorphone. And your highest-potency opioids are things like buprenorphine or fentanyl. Okay, let's get into the specifics here, focusing first on vaginal birth. The most common source of pain in the early days after vaginal delivery are perineal lacerations, uterine contractions, and breast engorgement. And there can be considerable variability in the individual pain experiences, like we mentioned just a little while ago. All right, here's a clinical pearl. A regimen involving NSAIDs and acetaminophen on a set schedule has proven to be an effective first step towards achieving postpartum analgesia, providing sustained analgesia, and decreasing the need for opioids. So did you get that? It's got to be on a schedule and then alternate Motrin with Tylenol to prevent overall maximum exposures of both medications. So PRN use, like we've written for years, actually for decades, is not good enough because if you start taking meds when your pain's already there, obviously it's not going to be as effective as if you take it on a set schedule. When NSAIDs and acetaminophen prove insufficient, the addition then of a low-dose, low-potency, and short-acting oral opioid is recommended with appropriate opioid options, including 
codeine, hydrocodone, oxycodone, tramadol, or morphine. So those are the low dose and again for the shortest duration possible opioids to use as second tier. Codeine, hydrocodone, oxycodone, or tramadol. Now, this is a break from how I trained because everybody received Tylenol number three, Tylenol with codeine or Narco, which was acetaminophen and hydrocodone because, well, we just kind of packaged them together, right? I mean, how great is that? You get a little NSAID, you get a little narcotic and you package them together. Well, that actually has fallen out of favor. It's not the best way to do it. So let's say that again. The approach is to use NSAIDs or acetaminophen alone and then add separately a low-potency opioid rather than using the traditional acetaminophen opioid or NSAID opioid combinations. The reason is, is that when you combine them, it can actually lead to potential excess opioid exposure as patients take more medications to try to deal with their pain and it can also have some unintended medication toxicity. For example, acetaminophen-associated hepatotoxicity is a leading cause of acute liver failure in the developed world, with a substantial proportion of overdoses being unintentional and attributed to combination acetaminophen opioid products. So there is also concern with these combination medications being given shortly after delivery and continued into their outpatient care because, again, thinking that we're doing the right thing by giving them these combination meds, it can actually be causing them some dependency down the road. So by using acetaminophen and Motrin as first line in a scheduled alternating fashion and then adding separately low dose, short, very short duration opioids, we can limit the overall exposure to opioid medication. Don't forget to go to birthtracks.com. This is so easy to use. This is your personal data entry tool designed for providers to quickly enter birth data at 2 a.m. It only takes one to two minutes on your mobile phone or your computer. This is a way to keep all your personal OB outcomes data all on one dashboard. Vaginal birth counts, primary cesarean rates, operative vaginal births, emergency cesarean rates, postpartum hemorrhages, VBAC success rates, vaginal lacs, NICU admissions, preterm birth rates, low APGARs, and even breastfeeding stats. As an added plus, it allows you to customize your data collection so you get to decide what kind of outcomes you want to track. Get the stats that you need easily and quickly with no need to go through the process of medical record reviews or hand calculating from a birth log. BirthTracks.com actually allows you to use the platform for free for 60 days. And as we stated before, if you're a student or a resident, it's free for an entire year. So go to BirthTracks.com now and get started for free for better accountability, better tracking, and better patient care. We are moving on to C-sections. C-sections, of course, causes a whole different level of pain compared to vaginal birth. A multimodal approach to analgesia, though, is also recommended here, and it's also part of the ERAS, the enhanced recovery after cesarean protocol. Neuraxial opioids, that means opioids administered by spinal or epidural anesthetics, like intrathecal morphine, are the most important contributor to immediate post-op pain relief, but their effects, of course, don't last forever. It's time limited to within about a day of delivery. 
Now, patient-controlled analgesia can also be a valuable component of initial post-section multimodal pain management for individuals who do receive neuroaxial opioids. So even if they receive a spinal with an intrathecal opioid, they can still get a PCA because you can limit and you can control the amount of opioids that they're getting. And remember, that PCA should be removed as soon as possible. Now, here's another clinical pearl. Pre-op intravenous acetaminophen. Yep, IV Tylenol can also provide useful post-op opioid sparing effects, and it's safe for use around the time of delivery. Now, DEX has also been thrown out there as a way of decreasing post-op pain, but the data is much stronger for dexamethasone for pre-op administration to reduce post-op nausea and vomiting, and the data regarding its effect on pain control is somewhat more conflicting. Hang in there. We're almost at the end of the podcast. And that last information should erase an additional question for you. Look, it's great if the patient received a spinal or an epidural narcotic, but what if the patient didn't have a regional anesthetic at her section? What if it was a crash C-section and she had general anesthesia? Or she had other reasons why a regional block couldn't be used? Well, in this case, a TAP block, a TAP block, is fantastic and it can also reduce the use of narcotics post-op. A TAP block uses a blunt tip needle to inject anesthetic in the plane between the internal oblique and the transverses abdominis muscles under ultrasound guidance, or you can use anatomical landmarks to guide you. Now, this targets the thoracolumbar peripheral nerves that innervate the lower abdomen. The best evidence indicates that TAP blocks are most appropriate in situations where neuroaxial opioids are not used at the time of cesarean section. And if a patient asks, or if your anesthesiologist asks, hey, she does have a spinal, but can we do a TAP block for post-op pain? Well, the TAP block really does not appear to be a useful adjuvant to standard multimodal therapy that already includes neuroaxial opioids. Now, we can't leave this podcast without addressing non-pharmacological interventions, specifically after surgery, after a C-section, because it's not all about giving a prescription and taking medication. There are some non-pharmacological interventions that can also influence pain relief. For example, abdominal binders, specifically after C-section, are associated with improved post-op pain control. And even though there may not be a lot of data or data that is not that strong about things like ice packs or heating packs, they just are overall comforting and can help reduce the patient's need for narcotics. There's more information to cover, but we're not going to do that in this session. We're going to do that in part two. Yep, in part two, we're going to cover pain control in the postpartum patient in the lactating individual because some medications could actually carry some risks to the newborn. And in that next upcoming session, we'll also cover the concept of ultra rapid metabolizers and why use of narcotics in these individuals can be kind of dangerous for their children, for their infants. So thanks for being part of our podcast family and stay tuned for part two, where we'll finish this discussion on multimodal pain control postpartum in the lactating individual. We'll see you soon.